Father God, we thank you for another beautiful day. A day in August, my God, that we can come and worship you together and learn more about you. And Father, I thank you for those people here who love you. And I thank you for your son and for the chance this morning to be able to know him better so that we can abide in him further. And in his name I pray, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Get a song for us. I have not hidden thy righteousness within my heart. 
So last week we were talking about worshiping in spirit and truth. And what does that mean? What does it mean to actually worship God? In, in many ways, the Psalms are the written ex, uh, expression of worship. And that's why they were sung and they're they part of participation in worship. Just like in the morning we go in and we have a time of, we call it praise, where we, um, we sing out different choruses and hymns and that type of thing. Some of them are very... Uh, rich in theology, which is our expressing back to God the revelation that he's given us. Some of it's just our heart just singing, right? And um, we get to verse 6, it says, you know, what God really desires of us is not sacrifice and offering. But what it says in the next, uh, second part of that verse, says, my ears you have opened, or uh, you could also read that as my ears you have pierced. I don't know if you know anything about ear piercing. Um, we, we do body art and ear piercing or piercing with many things today that are just about us, right? Um, what we think is cool. Well, ear piercing in, in this context and in this culture had to do with uh, being a servant. And when uh, you bound yourself to your master through uh, your freedom, so in, in that you are not required to be bound. So there isn't, a, uh, like you weren't sold into slavery, right? But you choose uh, to be a servant uh, to your master. They would have a, what they call a bonded servant, right? And they would take and they would pierce the ear. Uh, sometimes it would be to the doorpost. Uh, to express your relationship with that household and your covenant with that household. So ear piercing has to do with covenant relationship, in this context, with God, and being part of his family, right? Um, through being adopted, in a sense. So you see that whole language of, of salvation here. Yes? Okay, so, I mean, we hear piercers to do hearing or whatever. Right. Do you say that they would pierce themselves to the door? Uh, that, that's one of the things they would do. They'd take and they would actually uh, drive the, the nail through or the, the piercer through the hall, whatever it is, um, and actually attach you, in a sense, to the household. Now, it's not like you were left that way. So it was it was the action that was intended to express the condition of the heart. Right? And that's what we do. That's what religious practice is intended to be. It's intended to be a reminder. Right? So when we look at um, the Orthodox Jews today that have... Uh, They'll have a phylactery on their forehead, and they'll have the leather strap that they'll wrap around their arm. And that whole practice, that comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it was intended to be a practice to remember, such that you would always be remembering what God has done um, in your life and in the lives of all people, and his goodness and his provision, and that you were bound to him. Right? So that's what that was intended to be. Now, it became uh, an empty practice. It became just religion. And, yes? Exodus 21 is where God said that they could do this. If the servant had gotten a wife 
but he was now let go, but he couldn't take his wife with him. He'd say, well, I'd rather stay with her. So he could, the master could pierce yeah, his ear, and then from then on he would blow. That's Exodus 21. Yep, and that's and it's being part of the household. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's, and that's what that's about. And um, so when we do it today, I imagine most people aren't even aware of where what it meant, at least in that culture. Just like the whole thing of wearing the blue thread on the corner of the, the garment. Those kinds of practices were there, not because they were stylish and cool, but because that was intended to help us remember. And when I read that in the psalm, especially a psalm like this, this is a psalm of David where he's uh, sharing his heart about how God sustains his servant. Right? If you look at the little caption that, that sometimes they put in your Bible, that's what it will say. But really it's the cry of David's heart as a man submitted to the lordship, the kingship of God. And, uh, and this is what he expresses about that. That God saved him from the muck and the mire. Chose him when he was, really, there was no worth in him that, that would make him choosable. And yet God valued him and chose him. And pulled him out of the muck and the mire and put his feet on a rock, solid ground. And uh, put a new song in his mouth. Right, And he, he goes on to say, many will see and fear, and will trust in the Lord. So David is like, wow, God totally transformed my life. That's the statement. This is a statement about transformation. And then David's commitment within that transformation to dedicate his life to the Lord. And uh, through several of our teachings recently, I've been trying to stress this. So we're in Genesis on Friday night, so came up this last Friday uh, about the transformation of Jacob. You know, what are the divisions of Genesis? What is the story trying to tell us? Um, why is there so little commentary? And one of the things that came up was uh, about the, the kinds of trials that we have, the purpose for the trials, and uh, the nature of transformation, and then binding yourself in this way. Um, and one of the things you'll find, this is a, a recurring theme in the Bible and that God does not uh, desire that we um, that we be successful in any way according to the world's terms right in fact he cautions us against it we read in 1 John uh, chapter 2 verse 15 it says do not love the world and, and one of the ideas of love has to do with choice. Do not choose the world. Right? In fact, you should hate the world. You should not choose the world. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, you can't have communion with God if your heart is somewhere else other than wholly devoted to him. And that would be the, the idea that we've looked at in, in John chapter 4 of worshiping God in spirit and truth. Right? Your whole heart is in. You're in with all your, your mind, your strength, your will, right? your heart. You're, you're all in. And it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away. And also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So it's talking about 
if you are in communion with God, if you are joined to him, in that is eternal life. Apart from that, it all passes away. I don't care how, how well you master the world. The world comes to an end. The Bible tells us that. And in fact, uh, if you observe the, the reality outside, it tells you that. It's all winding down. It's coming to an end. And it's not just uh, social structures. It's actual physical reality itself will come to an end. But God remains. And that's what God wants us to understand is that true life is in communion with him. That's what this psalm is about. It's about um, looking forward to the salvation that God has, has provided. Yes? This is really near and dear to my heart. Some of those passages, the first John one talks about, and I love the way the New International says, the great things of sin to men. Because you go to First uh, Peter, or Second Peter 1, and it says that his great and precious promises were given to us to, so that we could avoid the corruption of the world caused by evil desires or yeah. And then you go back to the Psalms, and one of the things I've always thought about the Psalms as I read it is David was a man after God's own heart. God told us that. And the Psalm that you read, it, like it teaches your heart what to feel. It right. teaches your heart what to think as you embrace those thoughts and those heartfelt thoughts. Um, but it's interesting that you know God gives us, we're not supposed to love the world, but he gives us a remedy for And and we're uh, constantly confronted with the the sinful cravings of the world. The world will tell you what is good and right, and will ask you to choose that as your statement of good and right. And God tells you something different. And so, in that sense, um, the Bible is a guide, or even prescriptive, about how to live, how to walk with God. Um, and that's the part we want to understand, where, it, and, and we want to understand the intent behind it, because it's not just a practice that we do, it's a, a mindless, heartless practice, rather, it's a mindful, heartful practice of choosing God in all situations, which is really hard to do, by the way. Um, in a fallen world because there's so much competition for your heart for your for your eyes for your desire right that the world is competing for that and it's trying to pull you in that direction and when we look at um, John where we're at I am going to bring us back to John (laughs) we see that what's happened uh, in the progression of John, is we understand that John really wants us to know uh, who God is. And he wants us not just to know in a head strong fashion, to have a lot of intellectual knowledge about who God is, um, his person, his character, his nature, um, his work, but he wants us to make that a heartful knowledge. He wants us to. Um, not just know, but as a result of a very deep sense of knowledge of who God is, draw near to Him. Right? Wants us to actually abide, to believe and abide with God, to remain in God. And that we see that in His theme, which He states 
And John's one of these guys, this is a very carefully crafted um, gospel. All of them are. <clears throat> this isn't just a fisherman one day saying, well, I think I'll write my memoirs because I'm on my way out. Now, this was very intentional. And John spent a lot of time working on this. Um, and when he gets to it, and I'll get to you here in a minute, Mitch, <clears throat> he gives us, after the whole of his uh, narrative about who Christ is and what it means to really believe him and, and remain in him as a disciple, he tells us what his, his point is. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So we understand that there are going to be some signs. We're going to look at that this morning. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that last statement has to do with abiding in him, has to do with communion. And that's John's whole point. And we should understand that as we're reading through some of these things, wrestling with them. We need to understand it's about knowing him, believing it truly, and then acting on that by remaining in him. Mitch. So just remind us the years that the other the Gospels were written. Uh, so when was, uh, does anybody recall when I suggested that this Gospel might have been written? Well, uh, so John was the longest lived of the Apostles. And uh, he lived into the 90s. And uh, we know that, um, for example, uh, part of this was probably written towards the end of his life. Part of it was probably uh, at least in possibly the prologue where he's dealing with some of the uh, counter-arguments, some, some of the heresy that's working its way into the church. But he also um, has parts in this that clearly were written before Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. And so I would say that the bulk of this was written before 70 AD. And that the epilogue, which is the very end, is uh, meant to encourage the church in the absence of Peter, who was crucified uh, for his faith in Rome. And that uh, Paul was beheaded because of his faith in Rome. And so, with the absence of those two great uh, spokesmen for the church, how could the church continue? So the epilogue was probably written after their deaths, um, and yet we still see that there were certain things that hadn't happened yet that we know occurred. So it's probably written in the mid to late 60 AD. Pardon? So, do you have time frames on top of your head? Yeah. I think Luke, Luke was around 50, most of them were around 50, Matthew and Luke, they different perspectives, the bright parts of the church, the Pauline epistles were first, and then and then John wrote that John was later. I thought John was 90, but I didn't realize that. Well, parts of it are more. Parts of it, like I say, an epilogue, and a lot of the maybe fine to him. So it wasn't just a single, okay, I wrote this, throw it out there. It, it went through yeah, some revision after four. Do you think you put the first, you know, the, the core out, and that circulated and got added and added? Yeah. And that um, they were trying to capture uh, the main body of, of the Christian faith, 
main body of the truth about who Christ is, um, what he came for, and um, what was the result that God truly did redeem the world. So many will put a late date on John because of some of the other, like I say, the epilogue probably came later and stuff like that, but the main body of it came um, prior to, about the same time as the other Gospels, essentially. Okay. Yeah, the, the good news is late is a relative term here because plus 30, plus 60 right. years from the date is incredibly close. Yes. I mean, speaking in world literature, you're speaking in right. I mean, most religious texts are plus 200. Right. on Alexander the Great is like plus 200 or something like that. Yeah. And we still accept that as a fire. Right. But this is like plus 30. Right. Yeah, I'm just referencing the fact that it's, he's had time to think about what he wants to say more so yes. than the other one. Not only has he had time to think about what he wants to say, but um, he's had time to observe how the attack against the church would start unfolding. And so, um, what is the greatest threat to the Christian today? What do you suppose is the greatest threat to the Christian, to your Christian walk? Is doubt, is doubt a threat? No. Can't have faith without doubt. Yeah. Can't have faith without doubt. Um, I think that small uh, mistruths based on the truth to um, help us like slowly drift off of the exact truth. It's like saying... Um, uh, you know, like all the all the bits on the apocalypse or Armageddon or say no, the movie Noah or things like this. You know, you get your believers and they see these things, and you know, it might not for one thing, you know, make someone not believe in God, but it's kind of like the devil speaking to Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, he's using the Word of God but misconstruing it in a way to just kind of like now you're going about your day and you're just these little thoughts are just not quite accurate, and so not staying in the Word, I think, is probably the Enemy. Yep. A dilution of the truth or a replacement of that with something that looks like truth. Mm-hmm. So, in order for us to have, I mean, you can have faith in something that's not true. Right? <laughs> and people do. Um, so, we need to know the truth. Yeah, I just read that. So, so what? Pluralism. Oh, pluralism. Yes. So the idea that uh, so in pluralism, um, all, all truth is truth. Yes. Basically, uh, your truth is as good as anybody else's truth, and that there is no uh, differentiation or division or stratification. All people are equal. And that so, reality is only uh, uh, being based on your experiences in your life. Yeah, so what happens is, is it turns you away from looking at God. So if we're supposed to worship in spirit and truth, there is an object of our worship, and that object is God, right? And, and God in, uh, in his unveiled self. So when Christ came, he came to reveal uh, to us who God is. And both in a way that we can understand and to also challenge us in ways that we couldn't understand, that stretch us, right? Stretch us in relationship with him. 
that um, we know that um, we're going to have trials that are not necessarily just about building our character. We're going to have trials that are designed to stretch us um, in um, stretch us in our faith in God. Right. So this came up uh, on our Friday night Bible study. So we're studying Genesis, and I said, "So where? What book are we in?" One of the members of our study said, well, we're either in Revelation or Job or something like that, right? Because we end up going down these rabbit trails. <laughs> so we went down the rabbit trail of Job. What is Job about? In the cosmic courtroom. That's right. God is on trial. And it's not Job, and the, the trials that he had were not to build his character, because it starts out in the very first few verses. It says, here's a guy who is beyond reproach. So his character is well-formed. It isn't about building Job's character. It's about demonstrating that God is good and he can be trusted. And that the accusation made against God is that he's not truly good and he cannot be trusted for the welfare of those that he loves. Right? And Job is a star witness in God's trial. Job... God says, check out my star witness, Job. Listen to what he has to say. And the accuser says, well, it's only because you protect him that he's given you this, this testimony. And, and God says, no, that's not true. And as a result, Job is challenged with a trial that has nothing to do with the development of his character. It has to do with standing for God, even when he can't understand it. So we have a unique position because we see the narrator telling the story. But Job doesn't have that. He's caught in the middle of it. Right? That's one of the ways that God stretches us. So he reveals himself in ways that we can understand, but he also reveals himself in ways that we can't understand and asks us to step forward and trust with him. And that's what Job did. In fact, I was looking at that this morning. I brought it up here. If you go to Job um, 13, 15, and for those of you who can't read this, it says, says, Though he slay me, even if I die, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. In other words, I don't get it. I don't understand what he's asking of me. But nonetheless, I'm going to be faithful and true, even to the point of death. So that's a trial that people go through. That's an expression of what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Right? And so what we're, as we progress through John, what's happening is that um, we understand that John wants us to understand, know who Christ is. So um, we see the first part of John, sometimes it's called the book of signs, is about um, revealing perfectly who God is in Christ and helping us challenge the misconceptions about God. So we have all sorts of misconceptions and the way that um, John presents this, the great misunderstanding, is he presents it through um, the thing that is most understood by him, the Jewish faith. Right? A faith that can be practiced without God even included. They could still do all of the practice of Judaism and not know God. 
And so he goes through and he challenges specifically um, different institutions within Judaism. Institution of purification and the concept of the wedding. The institution of the temple, the place where you draw near to God. The institution of the rabbinical teaching and, and what that uh, is about. The institution of um, to it, um, I'm trying to remember if you think of the right word here, um, tradition. So tradition tells you, so if, if you look at the Christian faith as it grew up, there were two uh, parts to that according to the Catholic Church. There was revelation in the word, and then there was the, the magisterium, or the tradition of interpretation of that. So you have the same thing in the rabbinic teaching. You have the revelation of the word, the prophets, um, the writings, and then you have a whole other body of work, which is the interpretation of that. And it's the traditions. Right? So, Jesus was challenging the traditions. Just like we should challenge the traditions of the church today that aren't based on truth and scripture. In fact, there was one guy by the name of Martin Luther. He was a real troublemaker. He, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he actually took and, and tacked 95 of them onto the church door. Said, you know, these are problems that we have. I'm going to challenge these traditions. So that's what, that's what uh, Jesus was doing. He was challenging the institutions of Judaism. And then what we're going to see is he's going to challenge um, the fundamental um, festivals in Judaism and what they're about because they're intended to um, bring us into communion with God all of this is intended to bring us into communion with him and yet you can do it apart from God so you can have Sabbath and not include God you can have Passover and not include God now imagine how that can be yet the Jews were doing it right? Um, the festival of tabernacles Hanukkah all of these different um, festivals that got challenged, Jesus was specifically trying to draw people near to God. And in a sense, what you're going to see from chapter 5 forward is the trial. It's, so up to this point, um, even though, in a sense, um, we're trying as to the truthfulness of the claims that Jesus is making, um, He's going to actually go on trial and the, and the discourse is going to change to that of uh, more of a courtroom scene. And that's why you're going to see things not necessarily in chronological order. So, for example, a lot of people would argue that John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 should be reversed because they don't follow in a good chronology. In chapter 4, he's on his way to Galilee and in chapter 5, he's back in Jerusalem and in chapter 6, he's back in Galilee. It's like, well, how did this happen? Well, it's because John is carefully crafting this so that we'll, we'll understand the larger picture of what's going on, not trying to track through in a chronology. So when you're talking about worshiping in spirit and truth, yep. and, and you've touched some things on truth, I, I need a clear definition. Okay, so the spirit part, I sort of understand that. Okay. But to worship in truth, is that what does that mean? I mean, is this does it just mean that you you are true, like Joe? Joe is true, or well, I, I feel I'm getting, 
So I can answer you directly, but I'm going to ask if anybody else has an answer for Tim. How would you answer if you were sitting in the coffee shop, and it can't be someone from his family? <laughs> how, would, how would you give the coffee shop answer? I would say the truth is that Jesus, fully God, fully man, came and paid the price for our sins so that we can be in him and have eternal life. That's truth, and that's we're worshiping him for that, because of that, in spirit, which is kind of like how David's heart was all for God, yet he was covered in iniquity, so it's hard, you know, that's spirit, um, but truth is the simple fact of the matter that he is our Savior. Yep, so, um, holy human, holy God. How, how many of you, that does that present a puzzle? <laughs> yeah. But worshiping in truth has more to do with my personal integrity. I would say that that's probably more about spirit, because that has to do with will. So integrity is when you're the same on the outside as you are on the inside, right? Um, and you're not trying to put up a facade or, or in any way create untruth, right? So um, your adherence to truth, your integrity, um, is uh, more a function of your will than the nature of truth. Does that make sense? So the nature of truth, truth is true whether you believe it or not. Whether you hold it to be true or not, um, it is the very nature of that which is real. So God is truth in that sense, in that... Um, Apart from him, there is, everything else is untruth. And that he defines the nature of reality, the nature of goodness, um, the nature of love. Everything comes from God. It is who he is. And that would be truth in an objective sense. And I think what you're referencing is more a subjective sense of truth, not subjective like... Uh, pluralism or anything like that. I'm not suggesting that, but more in the sense of it's an expression of how you hold the truth and express it. And that, I would say, is more a function of spirit. So truth is to have a correct understanding uh, of who God is and the nature of reality. And, in fact, I've suggested this many times, read through John and everywhere you see the word truth, stick in the word reality and see how that changes your understanding of the Gospel of John. Because, um, so, God doesn't want to be misunderstood. He wants us to fully understand the revelation that he gives us. He doesn't reveal everything to us, but that which he, he reveals to us, he wants us to truly get. And so that requires that we struggle with that a little bit. Because, you're being challenged with a bunch of untruth. So, when you're worshiping God, you are not just uh, singing out from your heart, expressing your integrity, but you're also um, apprehending the true revelation that he has given you, that he is fully God and fully man. That he could actually enter the creation that he created. And he could do that 
where none other could, for the sole purpose of expressing his love in rescue, in redemption. That would be the truth part. Um, so, but that has nothing to do with me. Does, so does, does everything have to do with you?
mean, you could study God and as, as the sole focus of your every conscious thought, and you still wouldn't be able to come near Him, apart from Him revealing Himself to you. But He has to draw us, if that makes sense. For me, it kind of, it kind of like mathematics, for example, 2 plus 2 is 4, no matter if you know it, believe it or not, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, more advanced mathematics that I don't understand could be true by all means, but I have no clue what I'm looking at when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So, yeah. so our, our digital world today is created by an analog reality that says that you can take uh, infinity, you can you can go to the limits of infinity. Yeah, infinity is right. Or zero. Two incredible, three, three incredible concepts of mathematics. Zero, one, infinity. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> I just want to say real quick, in this passage specifically, I don't think there's any reason to get too material with it. He's talking to a woman, yep. a Samaritan, yep. who doesn't believe the Messiah. Yep. And what he's saying to her, it's almost like Paul saying, you worship the unknown God. He's saying, there's coming a time when I reveal myself. I am the truth. Yep. He says that makes that statement as well. Yep. When you're going to know who I am. Yep. And these people will know who I am. The Jews will know who I am because the truth comes from the Jews, is what he said. Salvation comes from the Jews. Yep. So he's saying there will come a time where I will reveal myself, and at that time, when you know who I am, that is when you will be able to worship in spirit and in truth. Right. So what he's insinuating is that before then, they were actually worshiping in spirit in a way, but they didn't have the truth at that point. Right. And so there's going to be a time when I reveal myself. Well, and he's he's drawn her into that. Mm -hmm. Right. And that uh, God wants us to understand. And so saying he actually answers her directly. He says, "Are you the Messiah?" And, and says, what's yes. really interesting is this is not only a woman, yeah, uh, a woman of, of ill repute that's not accepted by her culture, a Samaritan, mm -hmm. right? But he's also talking theology with her. <laughs> he's talking high spiritual truth, like he did with Nicodemus who had every right to be in that conversation, but this woman has no right to be in that conversation. Interesting that these are back-to-back, -back because God wants all people to know who he is, and he doesn't want us to get caught up in, uh, in the way of the world, which will challenge truth in every corner. So the, the object lesson I got to that is, is what's called a, a dog do brownie. Right? So if you made this big batch of brownies oh. and went out in the backyard and you found your neighbor's dog dude and you took just a little tiny piece and put that in the brownies. Right? Just a little tiny piece. I'm not, you know, not a big one. And, and you prepared that brownie and you offered it to somebody. And you said, now, this is a good brownie. It tastes good. It's sweet. It's chocolatey. You will love it. Oh, by the way, there's just a little bit, just a pinch of dog meat. <laughs> Could you eat that brownie? No, no, no. That's what the world's doing to you. Yeah. It's giving you brownies with dog meat. And, and it doesn't look like that. It looks like a brownie. So the biggest challenge to Christians is that little bit of untruth that creeps in. And it creeps in at every angle. You're constantly under attack. And guess what? This I watched Noah, and I was so disappointed. I to engage in something interesting, and it was, it was totally wrong. Oh. So, you know what bothers me is that people will see this 
think that it's about something that you know, we might hold true. We don't hold that true. So that's what's happening. And it happens in a very, very subtle way. To the point where Christians themselves get, get derailed. That's why I say parts of this were written later. Because the Christian church was under attack. Now it's not that, I mean, the, the main body of this was written, you know, in one, one piece. But uh, we, we have a big problem today. In the dilution of our faith. And that's what... The, the remainder of this chapter is about. And I know I'm... You got three minutes. Go for it. Yeah. So, so I'm just going to you know, skip from 31 to 38 really quickly. His disciples come back, and Jesus has been in this great conversation. Right? He's revealed the truth to this woman, and she basically kind of says, wow, i got to go tell somebody about this. And they got to come meet this guy. So she heads back to tell people about what she has just encountered. Now, that's got to be an incredibly bold move for her. Because she's an outcast. And yet she's going to go to the people that cast her out. And she's going to be a witness. right? And in the meantime, Jesus' disciples come back and they see him talking to this woman in a, in a theological conversation. And they said, what's up with you, man? Uh, we went off to get some food. Are you hungry? You know, trying to figure out, well, let's bring this back to reality here. And uh, he says, you know, I'm, I'm hungry and tired, but I have food that you don't know anything about. That food is that he's doing that which he was designed for. I don't know about you guys, but uh, when I operate the way that God designed me to operate, it actually gives me energy. It, it, it makes me more alive because that's the way that God is putting me forward, right? And uh, the challenge for me is to, to hear and to obey, right? But, and I think that's true of all. But when you, uh, when you stand out for God, when you accept the challenge that he gives you, which may be what we would call a trial, um, you will, in that, find life. Now, that be worshiping in truth? That would be worshiping and spirit and truth. And that's when Job said, even if he slay me, I will still hope in him. Right? So step, standing out and stepping out in truth. Well, that's what Jesus is saying to his people. He's saying, you know, my father, whom I'm here to perfectly express to you, has asked me to do this very thing. And that sustains me. That I don't need anything else other than what God has asked me to do. You guys have the I am part of it. So, uh, the I am part, um, when you look at, as he reveals himself in verse 26 to the woman, he says, so she's, she's talking about, yeah, we know that there's going to be this one Messiah, and she has an understanding of what Messiah would, who he would be as uh, the one that is the perfect spokesman for God, but not necessarily understanding that God can become man. I mean, that's, that's nobody quite gets that, right? And when he introduces herself, uh, himself to her and says, uh, speaking of the Christ, I am. And uh, when he says, I am, uh, it doesn't, in, in your translation, Christ says, I am he, right? Well, the he is, is added. 
Yeah, yeah, it's italicized. The reason it's italicized is because it's not there. So what this is actually is is the proper name of God. So when Moses met God in the burning bush, he said, Who should I tell him is sending me? And God said to Moses, Tell him that I am is sending you. So I am uh, became, uh, they took the vowels out of it so that they could, you know, uh, reverence the name of God. And today we would, we would put the vowels in, the vowels for Lord, and we come up with the, the word Yahweh. Or if you're German, Jehovah. Right? And so Jesus is using the, uh, the personal name of God when he introduces himself. So, oh, by the way, I'm God. And, uh, and she, she, didn't, she didn't flinch. Right? She believed. She, she saw the truth. It was revealed to her. She believed. And she had to tell others. So she runs away. Jesus, of course, that's what he came to do. To reveal God. Perfectly. And so when we have our, our concept of the Trinity, and these are some of the verses that we use in support of the Trinity, this is the triune God and the second person of the Son, perfectly expressing the um, the single essence of God. And never mind fully God and fully man. Trinity. Pardon? I said never mind fully God and fully man. It's the Trinity thing alone. Is already... Right. And, and you see uh, a lot of the, the Trinitarian thinking as we read through this. But I'm sure she probably didn't rock Trinity or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and certainly his people didn't because they had the great misunderstanding about food. And we're going to see that there's a lot of misunderstanding about food. And so... Remember that our next potluck is a great misunderstanding about food. <laughs> it's to draw together in communion. That's what it's about. But I, I want to get to this last part. It says, from that day, uh, I'm reading from verse 39. It says, from that city, many Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, uh, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. An incredible uh, testimony from people that aren't even his own. That this is the Savior of the world. Which is the everlasting covenant that God made. That he would... God desires a people um, for himself. Uh, not because he needs... Uh, he needs that to complete him or in any way make him whole, but because he loves. Um, and that he expresses that perfectly in creation. And that that's part of his communion with that is, uh, is life-giving. Life, it's all about life. right? In this world, it's all about the money. In his world, it's all about life. And we go on, it says, And after two days he went forth from there uh, into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. So they're learning about who this guy is, um, the way that we learn who guys are in the world. And they said, oh yeah, come over here and teach. We, we hear you have interesting things to say. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water 
wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him, basically commanding him, uh, to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So here's a really important uh, guy, probably in the uh, Herod Antipas administration, and he was in a position of authority, and his, his uh, child was dying. And he knows the stories about Jesus, that this is a great physician. He has some kind of magic that others don't have, and he wants him to come. He believes it. <clears throat> he believes that Jesus can heal his son. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. In other words, um, in order to get to the point of worshiping in truth and spirit, in order to get the truth, we have to show you something that is, um, in the world's view, incontrovertible evidence. Problem is, is, if it's in the world's view incontrovertible evidence, you will later um, find some justification, some other way that that could have happened. You know, this happens all the time, and I know I'm, I'm over time here. Um, where someone will pray to be healed from an illness. And they say, Lord, if you pray, if you uh, deliver me from this illness, or if you deliver me from this foxhole being under fire, I will dedicate my life to you, and I will, be, I will believe in you for, for every for remainder of my days. Right? And there is a miraculous delivery. And within a matter of months, usually that fades. Or sometimes minutes. <laughs> Minutes to months, it will fade. Because if your faith is based on what you see, it's not faith. And that's what Jesus wants to tell these people. If the biggest problem we have is apprehending God, who he truly is, and uh, believing that, we have to believe it in the face of a lack of evidence. Otherwise, it's not faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Right? And that this is the challenge that you've all been given. I mean, this, this uh, official could go face to face with Jesus and say, come and heal my son. But Jesus said, you know, I can be apart from you and I can heal your son. You have to believe in me for who I am. It seems like that guy didn't have any issue already believing that too because when his reply to Jesus is just... Is just Come heal him, you know, like he knew, he believed that Jesus could heal him. And so, even though Jesus told him, no one's going to believe unless you see signs and wonders, he was like, okay, but just heal him. Well, he, he believes that he can heal him, but it, does he believe that he is the I am? That's the question. And so, what, and, and I'm out of time, so i gotta, I got to catch up with Daniel. So I'm going to just read this and then we'll close in prayer. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired in the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. So what we don't know is if this was a lasting faith. We know that there were a lot who believed in Jesus that fell away at the cross. And this is the bookend to this, this uh, challenge of the 
institutions of religion. That faith happens apart from sight. You're not going to get the evidence that God exists apart from that which he's already revealed, which leaves us with doubt. Faith is what you do in the presence of doubt. That's why it says this is, again, the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea. So that's the, the, the bookend on this whole part about challenging the religious beliefs of people. And now what's going to happen is we're going to see a transition to the courtroom scene. And I know i got to come back to this because Daniel's not going to let me cut him off like that. Um, but I wanted to at least finish this section before we head out. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, come to you in your word again today and uh, to be challenged by it, that we truly desire to know the truth and not be um, drawn away by the temptations of the world, which are many, Lord. And we just ask that you would protect us from that. We ask, uh, you know, as you taught us to pray, Lord, that you are our Father in heaven and truly to want to be uh, reverenced, and that uh, we ask that your kingdom would come in this world, um, just as it is in heaven, and that you would provide for us daily that which we need, Lord, and that you would deliver us from all of the evil that is around us. And Lord, we uh, end this with thanking you, truly, for all that you are, and ask for your provision, your protection, and... uh, Thank you so much for your service to us, Lord, that you've given your life that we might live. Thank you for this, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.